Welcome to Weekend at Crombie's for Episode 6, Dancer in the Dark. Welcome everybody, this is episode 6, as Hugh so rightfully suggested at the start of the podcast. Uh, see, I've uh, created a new uh, word there, podcast, with a hyphen in between. Um, I think that we are now established enough to start to consider um, changes to the English language. How culturally significant we are, Hugh. <laughs> uh, as you are all obviously aware by now. And episode 6, I mean... We've made it halfway through the year. No one's died. through the year. But yeah, lots, lots mean, of people have died since the start of the year. Yeah, well, okay, I didn't want to bring the tag down. There'll be plenty of depressive <laughs> conversations during the podcast for Dancer in the Dark. But, um, funny you, funny the- you mention people have died. I've noticed in, in our films, um, and spoiler alert, most of the protagonists end up dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. Well, better them than us. That's what I said. Santa oh, Claus, without Santa Phantom died. of the Paradise, who died. Manny died. You've, um, of course he got yeah. uh, too late. Well, the hero Quigley, died. Quigley. Too late. The hero. Quigley didn't die. Quigley is our lone survivor. He so. he, yeah, he's, he's our lone survivor. His acting career died yeah. though. Dom Selleck never never did a film career after that. <laughs> well, he did. He just did straight to video films, all basically playing the same role as Quigley. Indeed. But, but anyway. This podcast is about Quigley Down Under or any of the other five <laughs> films that we have deep dived. And Dancer in the Dark was the film that I chose for this episode. Hugh, would you like to introduce your... Good evening, I'm Hugh. I'll always be there to catch you. <laughs> okay, that's very sinister. Um, I, I, uh, I, let, let, let's start with... Let's start Dancer with in the Dark. Dancer in the Dark. What, what, right, so we, and we've had a discussion, as we always do before the start of the, uh, the recording, that we will get the synopsis down to less than an hour. Yeah, I think um, last year we, uh, last episode we could say that um, it was a long, long trudge uh, through a hellish landscape um, <laughs> that seemed to last forever, led by two complete incompetents, and that was just the movie. <laughs> Very good. So you've, you've had that bo- uh, broiling, haven't you, for the last couple of weeks since we did the podcast? I've had that um, broiling ever since it took me four hours to edit the damn thing down. <laughs> <laughs> a podcast not only long than the film Too Late, The Hero, but also more interesting. And actually, given <laughs> well, it was listened to uh, 12 uh, times, more popular. Uh, yeah. Right, Dance in the Dark. So, That's what cool. have we with Dance in the Dark? By um, Lars von Trier. Of the Danish new wave of, of filmmaking, um, although this is actually a, an American film, although it's, it's European financed. Um, Dance in the Dark is about uh, a woman uh, who goes by the name of Selma, well, I didn't go by the name of Selma, that's a name, um, She's uh, an, an immigrant from... Now, I, in the film, it suggests that he's from the Czech Republic, but that can't be the case, because I'm fairly sure that in the 60s, when it's set, it was Czechoslovakia. Is it set in the um, 60s? It is. It's set, yeah, it's set in the 60s. I know where you got I, that. No, well, it, it is interesting. I... I it perhaps because of the cars in the film. So there are some that look really old. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'd assume, therefore, it, was a, it wasn't set in the modern day. And some of the kind of railroad, the railroad scenes, etc., were, were, were old-fashioned. But, it, it, I mean, you know, I know that it is set in the 60s. Okay, we'll put a pin in that, too, because I'm going to come back to that, um, how it looked. But, yeah, so um, Selma okay. is a Czech-slash-Czechoslovakian immigrant who's working yeah. uh, in an American factory. 
Uh, it's yeah. it's dredging work, but she finds release in old black and white Hollywood musicals, uh, which she also conjures in her own head. The, yeah. she, she listens to the music of the, the machines and the people around her and the tip-tapping of toes, and she, she falls into song and dance. Um, we should mention this is somewhere played by Bjork, who, uh, who wrote, I think, all the songs and performed them herself, too. Yes, she did. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and she, she gets lost in these kind of very romanticized ideals of what Hollywood musicals are for two reasons. She has a, a, a drudgingly dreary and grim um, kind of home life, I guess. Really. She's living in the trailer, a local police officer um, called um, uh, Bill, I think his name is, yeah. I don't know what surname. And, and his wife, I think. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know it's it's, it's fairly poverty driven, but she's also and she's got to look after her son as well, Jersey, um, who is um, a, you know a, coming to terms with life in America perhaps, and um, you know has his troubles per se. Although we doesn't really go into detail about the kind of yeah. issues that he might be having at, at school. Or something, but he, has, he, has, he, has, he seems to just have kid problems. He wants a bike. Um, everyone else in school has a bike. She can't afford to give him one. It's that kind of yeah. stuff. It's, it's that, yeah, yeah, it's that kind of stuff. But the other, the other if it's up to anything, generative um, sight issue. She's, she's going blind and quite significantly so and quite seriously so and quite quickly as well. Um, and it is... Um, Something that will also have, although he doesn't know this. So what she does is that she spends, you know, all her time um, effectively working at the factory. I think uh, what's the phrase? She's a, a, a puller, or um, you know, one of those big kind of factory manufacturing machines where she puts some vinyl sheets in, slams it down with a with a, um, a lever, and then lifts it up again, and it's kind of flattened as it goes. It goes in flat. It comes out as a pot. Oh, okay. There we go. Yeah. There's, that's why I should never work in factory. Yeah, we, we wouldn't survive two minutes in an industrialised... Yeah, all work, heavy machinery. Yeah. Someone who is borderline blind. I'm amazed she got the job, but there we go. She, she's, she's been told anyone that she's blind, or is, you know, being blind. So nobody, except that, you know, occasionally you'll see her feeling around for things, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I do find, you know, sometimes in the film she's perhaps more blind than in other times as well, depending on what the story requires at a particular point in time, but that's something else. Um and um, it, she's not told anyone, and she's been any scraps of money that she can get together through the work that she does. She also, um, she does you know, other bits of work as well. Yeah, you know, she spends all, all day, every day, just doing grudgingly boring work, and every, every bit of money she saves up for an operation for her son to, um, you know, stop the, stop the, um, the degenerative illness from taking hold with him. She tells people that, She's saving up for her. It's her father, yeah, who will be, who lives in uh, Czechoslovakia, um, who, you know, she's saving up for him, basically. But of course, that's not true. So she lives in this trailer in the garden of local police officer, um, and she gets lost in Hollywood music, very deep, essentially. She can't see, or she's very limited eyesight. She has a fairly um, dull, grindingly. Uh, boring life, which is, you know, cripplingly um, poor. And the, the musicals enable her to escape. They give her that sense of purpose, that sense of well-being. She's often going to the cinema to, if not watch, but then listen to the films with her close uh, friend um, called Kathy, who's played by Kevin Nerve, actually, um, who describes the films to her. And, you know, so it's, it's a very... Um, it's kind of like a, 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 a double act with them, it effectively, that, that, that uh, she's 
uh, being told what's happening on screen, and then she's imag imagining them um, consequences. So that's a kind of that's where that's where she is um, in in the actual kind of film itself. The plot, as such, the, the the driving force of the plot is 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 essentially that really. She's trying to make do. She's trying to look after her son, um, but she's unable to do so. Dark and Dark is a musical, but it's a musical of of a, a slightly alternative. We go into that when we look, look at the kind of analysis of the film. But there are musicals. There are what what might be described as um, Hollywood pastiches, I, I guess, really, of um, these extravagantly choreographed musical numbers, but set in a factor or. Um, on a on a uh, train um, going over a bridge with a, a, a you know collection of um, railway workers, or um, just after a murder scene, for example. Yeah, it, it's a it kind of breaks the convention of what you might think a musical be, um, but it is definitely a musical in that context. Now, yeah. um, what, what what happens as a consequence is that we we learn that um, Bill, uh, the police officer. Uh, who, who Selma is living in trailer in the garden of. Um, he's he one evening after work he kind of um, reveals to Selma that um, his wife is you know, she's she's a bit of a cuckold I guess really in the sense that she she wants a lot of money buying things. She, I don't think that's the correct use of the word cuckold. <laughs> is, oh, what's cuckold? A cuckold is a man whose wife has been cheating on him with another man. Um, yeah, but with really, yes, she's not. Well, a so she's cheating on him in the sense that she loves money more than. She... That would, that would still make him a cuckold, but I don't think there's any cuckolding going on. She's a spendthrift. Well, I'm going to go with that word. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, no, I don't. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'm watching too much porn. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he he's basically he had he had an inheritance. That's the thing. They teach all Bill's inheritance, so he had. Oh, he's got a lot of money. Um, Linda, his wife, has been spending money all over the place. Um, the inheritance has now dried up completely, and he hasn't either got the heart to tell her he's got no money, and he hasn't got the heart to stop her spending money, so he can't say no to her. So he's completely broke, um, and as can see no way out of it, he can't tell anyone he's got no money. Selma, in, in order to make him feel better, tells him her secret that she's going blind, um, and we think that's the end of it. However, Bill, um, then, who's played by David Morse, who isn't really a recognised name, but generally plays... Seemingly nice guys who are ultimately creepy, um, much as yeah. this character is yeah. here. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a character actor, isn't he? He's, yeah. As you say, he's, he's probably more well known for, for theatre in America rather than yeah. um, films, but he's 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 a good sporting character. He's, he's, he's the guy that unleashed the Twelve Monkeys disease in Twelve Monkeys. He's the guy that <laughs> yeah. um, unleashed the the virus bombs in the Rock. <laughs> he was the yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, yeah um, so Bill. Bill basically um, exploits Selma's lack of sight to see where she keeps her secret stash of money and then sneaks back and steals it. Um, that, that's kind of the instinct thing. At the same day that, um, that Selma gets fired from the factory because she's finally, I think she tries to pull a night shift as well. That makes it even harder because she can't see anything. Um, she, there is a moment with the steel press. Basically, she jams the steel press by doing something wrong with it. Um, I did think that limbs were going to get lost in it because it was very much set up as Chekhov's yeah. steel press. Things were going down and they kept it. I thought, that steel press, yeah. there's no safety in there. Someone's hands going in that. But luckily... It's I had, uh, yeah, I had my um, my hands were covering my eyes at that moment because yeah. I was, I, me too, I also was certain yeah. that there was going to be something a bit more um, extreme than actually just simply the machine breaking. But, you know... This ain't no fountain of the paradise where people get squashed in yeah, press. exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so there, there, there's enough intensity in film anyway without having to yeah. deal with uh, um, her arm being chopped off. Yeah. 
So Selma, so Selma now is fired. Um, she's given her severance pay. She comes home to put her severance pay in with the rest of the stash, finds it's all gone, pretty much puts two and two together and comes into to Bill's house, where Linda is now giving it the stink eye because Bill has covered for the fact he was talking to Selma by saying Selma has, has come on to me. Um, yeah. And then Selma goes upstairs, confronts Bill in a very very um, passive way and just gently takes back her money, which then triggers off um, the, the fairly horrific scene where Bill firstly pulls a gun on Selma and that's the guest then gets Selma to feel it's a gun because she can't see that he's pulled the gun on her. There's a struggle over the money. Bill then gets shot, but not fatally. Uh, Linda um, screams and runs off for help and then Bill, who's still clinging on to the money, refuses to let it go unless Selma kills him. I think he's now at a, such a a mental low, he wants to die, but wants Selma to do that because he can't do it himself. So Selma does her best to shoot him, but bullets fly everywhere because she's not that accurate. Um, and in the end, I think picks up a safety deposit box and uses that yeah. to bludgeon him to death. <laughs> his head is, I mean, it's really, it's really not a funny scene at all. No. <laughs> it, it really isn't. And actually, it, it, it goes on and on as well. It's quite it does, yeah. to watch. It, it, is, it is quite a tough watch. I mean, we've, we've, we've reviewed some films... Um, as part of the Weekend at Crombie's um, uh, process, which have had gruesome moments, I guess, of the hands being caught in the um, the, the train in, in Runaway Train or um, uh, in, in um, Phantom of the Paradise facing the vinyl press machine. But but nothing quite as prolonged and as darkly depressing as the five to ten minute scene of Sella and struggling to keep their lights out of them and it just descending into um, a kind of horrible uh, mess of blood and violence. I mean, it's quite graphic as well, I would say, in the, in the sense that a lot of it is on. It's, it's a challenging watch, actually. Yeah. But, but I, I would say one, one, of the, one of the processes here is that Selma is quite a passive character in the film as well. In describing this particular scene, it may sound as though um, there's there's a real kind of um, violent and aggressive struggle, and actually there's a reluctance and a passiveness to Selma. I think you mentioned that she's she's very a, a passive process in this, and it's all very pathetic. So, and that makes it even more. It, it is quite heartbreaking. No, yeah, she, no yeah, she gently reaches over and takes the money from him um, as he's catatonic. Not, she doesn't snatch it back. She doesn't even confront him. He's stolen no. it. She just says, "It's not your money. I need that money. I'm taking my money back. I, know, I can't count it here because I can't see it, but I trust you. It's all there." And so, yeah, so so basically, Selma has bludgeoned him. She makes some attempt to get away. First thing before she gets away, she runs away from the from the, the murder scene and gives all her money to this eye doctor, basically yeah. saying, when my son is of age, when he's got to be 13 to have this operation, he'll come to you and get the operation done. Um, after yeah. that, she then goes to her local amateur dramatics group, where they know she's coming because they've been tipped off, and they have to stall her long enough to get arrested. Her love of Hollywood musicals is meant that she's been um, auditioning for a role in... Uh, and local amateur dramatics groups performance of sad music. I think she's got the role. She she is uh, Maria. Oh, she, yeah, she has got the role. Yes, yeah, she's got the role. It, it, you know, as, as the first half of the film kind of moves forward, it's it's clear that she she just can't see enough to be able to perform. Uh, she, I, she, for me, she's very naive, and, and I think this is part of the plan of Lars von Trier. I think this is his tactic in the film. But she she's arrested effectively. 
and then there's a, 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 a kind of trial scene. She is accused of being a communist, um, will not reveal the reason, uh, she will not reveal Bill's secret because it, it, he, he told her the secret of him being broke um, as a secret and she refuses and really goes against her in the trial because effectively she's condemning herself to the death penalty because she has no motive. Effectively, she's got no motive for the killing. And by refusing the, the, the motive for Bill might have had to steal her money, she's effectively condemning herself um, to the death penalty. And at this point, um, you know, it, it becomes apparent that she's not been telling the truth about her father um, and she's not been saying that for her father because... She's been telling people that are the famous Czechoslovakian fucking actor. Ballet dancer. Yeah, she uses the name of a famous Czechoslovakian dancer as her father. And in the court, this particular dancer is called in and reveals that he has never met her before in his life. So if we go, that's the end of that. She's going to be, um, she's done for it. And they um, grant death penalty to her as well. So then, the, also the, the reason of, she's not saying anything about her eyesight is because um, her son has no idea about this degenerative condition. Um, she doesn't want him to know. She's afraid that worry will make the eyesight get worse. Um, so she's also not saying she needs the eye um, money for the eye um, operation either. And so she gets the death penalty. And the kind of final act of the film really is Selma in the kind of uh, death row, as it were. And um, she's she's in solitary confinement. She befriends. Um, a uh, prison guard, a female prison guard, who sees something in her and um, helps her through what is quite a challenging period, obviously. And in, in this scenario, the, the importance that her imagination and music is to her, because in a, in a, in a silent cell um, with no external stimulus, she is struggling to continue to kind of be sane in any way yeah and it's only until she's able to tap into kind of the rhythmic motion and naturalistic noises that take place within the, the prison area that she can release herself and start to sing again and that helps her calm down the yeah. guard. and the, the, the guard has helped her to release that within her so it's you know it's it's both quite euphoric in in many ways but also very very challenging in, in the sense that she is a particular context yeah and so uh while she's waiting for execution kathy has engaged another lawyer who's sort of not the court appointed lawyer he's a good one um and basically says to selma he can get her out um on a t- he didn't get her off death row um, yeah. however his fee happens to be exactly the same amount of money it would take for the eye operation um, yeah. And Selma realizes that uh, her getting off death row it was, means no eye operation for her son. So she basically gets a refund off the lawyer um, and the understanding that it means curtains for her, but it means the yeah. eye operation will go ahead. And she, you know, there's a couple of really quite powerful scenes of Selma talking to Kathy um, you know, in, in prison, the telephone system, and her really. They're really at loggerheads with each other, and Selma is is distraught, and Kathy is distraught as well because Kathy thinks it's better that Selma is alive for her son. Yeah. And Selma thinks it's better that her son sees than having her mum alive, and there is that real kind of tension there. But it's, it's, there's there's quite a few powerful scenes in this, and it's it's but it's it's quite effective in that context. Yeah. And and in the in the end, there's no appeal. It all goes. You know, she's she's. And we get to the point where um, 
she's uh, taken from her cell into the execution chamber uh, where she's going to be hanged. Um, and I mean, it's a really cheery film, um, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you can tell. Oh, blimey. Um, and, you know, she's she's quite strong in those first instances, but she, she kind of falls apart a little gets into the actual chamber itself and has a, a hood put on her and she you know she screams she can't take it she can't take the the, the pressure of it so the is taken off and she starts to sing um, she, she falls apart effectively and Kathy's in the, in the audience that's completely the wrong phrase I guess she's in the seats that look at the hanging she's, she's one of the witnesses to the hanging yeah she's got the already um, <laughs> she, she's basically saying you know be um Jersey's outside. He's had his operation. He can see. Yeah, she doesn't. Um, she manages to rush onto the, the the place of execution and press Jersey's yeah. glasses into her hand, saying he's had the operation and he can see. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that security is kind of not strength. strong in this prison. No, no, it isn't. No, that gives her the strength to deal with the situation that she finds herself in, and actually she starts to sing, um, um, a sing a kind of like a, a a cappella um song, a very mournful, uh, beautifully rendered um. Uh, piece of music um but, but i mean has the last laugh really because she's not able to finish the song because the, she um drops to her death and her neck is broken and effectively it's the end of the film yeah. um the, the the camera pans out a little bit and it goes up um to, to the gallery and that is literally the end of the film so she she there is no redemptive um act there is no there is no release, and there is no release for us um, as as a, as uh, watchers of the film either. There is a um, comment in the in the film that Salma doesn't like the final act of musicals or the final song in musicals because it means yeah, to say that she yeah. always likes to end, leave the theatre one song before it's over. It's, yeah, this is what I was going to mention. It's it's a it, it's it's a very clever um, by by von Trier to write that into the script early on. You know, she doesn't like the because it's the end where it's the sad song. Um, so she'll leave. She'll leave just finals. What happens here is that she leaves just sing the final song. Um, so even she's not even given that opportunity. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's fairly it's fairly despicable of Von Trier I think, in that regard to do that to the character, but also to do that to the audience as well because we don't. Allow, it's not just to have our release. Are yeah. Um, but I mean. I think what we've done there, am I right in thinking that's about a 20-minute synopsis? I think we've done a 20-minute synopsis. I've never been prouder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't believe Well, well, well. And we will get to some analysis, which you can really take our time over now. Welcome back, uh, where we take a a good hard look, um, which is something that poor Selma couldn't do, at Dancer in the Dark. James, would you like to tell us why you chose this film? I actually like the fact uh, a little chuckle there as you laugh at <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I chose Dancer in the Dark. I think um, for primary reason really was because we had five uh, films that were very male protagonist heavy. Um, and I felt it was perhaps a chance to redress the balance a little bit and simply simply have a, a female character as a, as the main protagonist, but is in essence almost entirely centered around Selma, um, and, and, and Bjork's character. Um, pretty much every single scene of the film, um, and the, the film 
completely revolves around her and not not necessarily just her actions but the sentiment of who she is and she means to the film as well i think is very strong i also was keen to watch a film that had some interesting technical decisions made about it um the way that it was filmed the of the film um the stylization of the film as well it's a very very distinctive film um and i also want you what you Hugh, thought of a that is what quite a divisive um quite a divisive director certainly yeah, yeah. i think you know you you either love him or him but i have both loved and hated some of his films okay um uh but they're always interesting. Um, a, a film which perhaps flips the convention of what musicals are, given that I know that you are a musical fan. Um, well, I thought I was, and, but of, of your three films, <laughs> two of them that you picked have been musicals. <laughs> yeah, and also, given that I'm not a musical fan, um, <laughs> I, it is 56.6% of my films have been musicals. I, I, think, I think by the choice of the films you picked, you're definitely still not a musical fan. <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess, but he was, well, this is In fairness, I've come around to the music of uh, of uh, Phantom of the Paradise. So that, that's why I chose the film, effectively. Okay. And you know, part of Weekend at Cromwell is about watching films that spark a bit of debate. Yeah, Absolutely. It's... And I will say, I've never been more interested in knowing what you think of a film than I have at this one. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> well, no, as well. And I mean, I probably have a preconception that you think of the film, um, and I may be proved. Um, you don't know. Um, in terms of the analysis of the film, it has some very interesting things for it. First of all, um, so Lars von Trier is uh, one of the founders of a, a, a Danish film movement called Dogma 95. And Dogma 95 is a, a, a technique of filmmaking which has also been employed by um, people like Westerberg as well in the mid 90s. And also more recently, The Hunt with. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a technique which is effectively um, it's, a, it's a kind of rules of the game almost it's, it's a system of requirements for directors to make films that only use natural lighting that use um, only use kind of graphic style recording instruments not um, not 35mm but actually kind of video recording it's got to be, I wouldn't say that necessarily has to be cheap but it has to be naturalistic in that regard um, it uses um, very naturalistic styles or either very naturalistic styles of acting or very hyper-stylized styles of acting, if that makes sense. So we see we see one version of each, and I think that within Dancing in the Dark, we're seeing is a very hyper-stylized type of acting going on mm. um, rather than a kind of normalized style of acting. But it does differ from the dogma kind of rules in, in, in two key, very specific, well, I think this is also Von Trier's way of saying a bit of a, a, a middle finger up to the, the, the kind of the, the sect, as it were, or the cult that he started. And the first one is that a Dogma 95 film can, can contain no violence, okay. physical violence. Contain mental or psychological violence, but it can contain no physical violence because that is out of the uh, ability of the film, the way that it's filmed approach. You would have to have some kind of special effect, for example. The okay. The second very distinctive difference is that Dogma 25 films are not allowed to have 
music that isn't part of the natural surroundings or environment of the film itself. And I think there's a phrase for it which you've used before, which is diegetic, is that right? Diegetic, that's it. Diegetic, yeah. So it can only contain, if, if there's music on a radio in the film, that's fine, but it can't have a soundtrack or a full piece of music going on behind it. And of course, it's a musical, but it's a musical founded within that Dogma 95 tradition, yeah. and it has it has two very distinctive, shocking and graphic pieces of violence, which couldn't happen in a Dogma 95 film because of the the visual effects that would be required for it. Yeah. So it's different there. The other thing that I think is interesting about Montreal's approach is that in doing this, in, in choosing a genre, of what he has done is, I think, very, very deliberately chosen uh, a, a genre which traditionally has the extravagance of glamour, of um, over-the-top of beauty, of grandeur, as it were, and has installed a grimy cheapness to the the musical and choreographed scenes within the film. So they are songs, although they're quite modern songs, written by New York, they be much within the uh, the, the tradition or the Hollywood musical. They are grand musical scenes. They contain, in some instances, you know, tens of people, hundreds of people dancing in a way that is choreographed to the music in a very light-hearted and over-the-top way. Calais scene, there's a tap dancing scene in the courtroom, which which harks on to kind of Ginger Rogers and Fred. So it's in a courtroom scene about someone on trial. Um, go to the death penalty. It's, it's a, it's a, it, what, what's interesting about film is you have complete dichotomies going on. An extravagant, big-budget Hollywood musical film video cameras that you can find. Um, a musical about a woman who can't see and is caged within a physical being and is treated absolutely despicably by the people around her, very close friends. But she... She, and she brings it upon herself in many ways as well, in, in the kind of in the um, the way that she deals with some of the situations that happen. So I think in that regard, Montreal, as always, as always, a film that I don't think you are supposed to like. Its primary function is not entertainment, but it is controversy. It is mischievousness. Okay. It is. Um, it is aggressiveness in filmmaking. It is to, supposed to provide a reaction. And I think that Montreal doesn't particularly care whether that reaction is euphoria or um, disgust. And, and that's why it's an interesting stylistic approach to take. Okay. This is... <laughs> right then. Is it my turn now? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I had no knowledge of that. I knew, I knew, I knew somewhat of, of Lars Montreal's background, but I didn't have that kind of that uh, in-depth knowledge of his, yeah. his work and his, his style. Uh, so I just watched it as a, a viewer. Um, yeah. From the get-go, I, it felt like a, a kind of a kitchen sink drama. Again, that natural style. I think I was, I was, I was seeing what was Dogma 95 um, without 95 without actually knowing the name for it. It was that, reminded me much of Ken yeah. Loach, that um, yeah. obviously kind of a Kathy Gunham, someone getting ground down and shot in a very naturalised way. So it felt like you're just there. It's not a, not a presentation. How did, um, you, how did you take to that? Uh, I'm interested to know how you've... Did that help you immerse yourself in the film, or what was the barrier? That helped me immerse myself in the film. Several okay. other things sort of pushed me back out of the film. Um, 
I, Bjork as an actress, I don't think was okay. I think she okay. was she wasn't hugely sort of engaging, but again, neither was Selma. I think so. I think what Bjork did bring mm. to it, again, she, I think there's a problem for the film because Selma is not someone you immediately latch onto. You're witnessing the world take a dump on Selma, and you're not quite seeing what she's bringing back to it. She, there were very small moments, and she, it was very little moments in her performance. It actually got bigger once the story got bigger, and she was in fear of her life in the death penalty, and you know, Bjork kind of let that some of the emotion. That got a bit more engaging. Mm-hmm. I think some of the, well, basically, the thing that let the, re- the thing down was the story. Um, that's probably one drive straight to it. It, the story didn't make much logical sense. It didn't feel like a thing that would happen, and therefore, about halfway through, once the the, the tragedy had fallen and all the consequences spilled out. I felt like I was just watching... Again, that was more of a play. Even though it was shot naturally, I felt like I was watching someone's experiment. I didn't feel like I was watching a story. So that was pretty much kicked off the Selma train, which I'd been on um, halfway through the film. And then once... Firstly, the whole thing with Bill, the the thing he insisted she kill him, and then the fact she does go ahead and bludgeon him, and then she makes a half-hazard escape. The fact that the eye doctor needs a precise amount of money to be paid in cash... Um, that is also the same amount of money the lawyer will have, so she can make that very kind of um, Hobson's choice of I will sacrifice my freedom for my son's life because it's exactly two thousand three hundred and twenty-nine dollars three cents to to mm. either give my freedom or give my son's sight. That felt very contrived. It was very much like a flag saying, "Look at what she is doing! Isn't this a mother's love?" Um, the fact that the 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 courtroom was so aggressively trying to kill her. Um, it didn't feel like this is a lawyer putting down the facts and that the system is breaking her down. It felt like the, the filmmaker has written a very contrived scene. Um, I mean, I know they, the budget was clearly not great for this. The courtroom looked like it had been thrown together with bits of plywood. But like even the fact that the jury delivered their sentence and they delivered their verdict and the sentence at the same time. And I thought, that's not how juries work. You've just skipped mm. that over. The jury said, we find her guilty and we sentence to be killed, so hanged by her neck. That didn't work for me. I'm off on one now. Um, the uh, the, uh, the fact that the fact that the death row the fact that the death row thing took about a week, which is not how death rows in America work. I'll come back to the fact that the setting didn't seem right. So all again, the fact that this is this was the very strange thing. The fact that the the the, the prosecuting attorney said, "You claim you're giving this money to your father," and she said, "Yes." And what's your father's name? Aldrich Novi. Oh really? Well, I just happen to have Aldrich Novi here, and he calls this complete stranger um, in to to testify that no, he is not her father. And it's like he's a famous star who's living in California, and he's like saying, um, "Was who's you, who's your father? Oh, my father's name's Michael Jackson." Where really I've called Michael Jackson to the stand, <laughs> and I thought, "What the hell does Aldrich Novi?" And they brought him in there simply because they could cast Joel Grey from Cabaret yeah. as Aldrich Novi, yeah. so they could have a tap dancing scene. And I thought, "You, you this is all ridiculous." This is, and then and it's fine when Bjork has her moments where she breaks away and has her her, her fantasy moments where she's dancing. But you've got to juxtapose the fantasy with reality, and when the reality breaks down, you completely lose track of it. The, the court, so everything up to the point when Bill stole her money, I was in there. I thought this is a tragedy. Bill has power over her. He's a policeman. He's a landlord. He is, you know, he's a an American citizen, and she's an immigrant. He has just taken advantage of her, and that's tragic. All that point, I was there. Everything after that was like he just lost. He he hadn't written the script and just said, "You guys go with it. It's kind of a court scene. It's kind of execution." Just go with it. And I felt bad because the final scene, her walk to death row, was very powerful. But by that point, yeah. I checked out. I thought, it's, it is powerful and it was hard to watch. But it was hard to watch in a terms of, I find this acting very moving. I am very aware that she is putting in a good performance. I didn't think, 
poor Selma, my heart is breaking, because by that point it was like, yeah. this is nothing. So, about the, the story, I did not enjoy it at all. Um, it was, it, I don't know whether Lars von Trier is big on story, or whether, as you say, he, he wants to provoke a reaction, but halfway through the movie I thought, this is silly, I'm just not in this. Um, this is very poorly put together. And just in terms of, it wasn't like the story choices, the simple things, like a lawyer wouldn't do that, a jury wouldn't do that, a, a death row policeman wouldn't do that. The fact that Kathy was able to run up to someone on the gallows and hand her glasses to her wouldn't happen. Um, I'm not even sure that hanging is a method of death um, used in America. Um, things of that nature made me feel like they're just penciling on the back of a fag packet. So all of that... I mean, yeah, tell on. us what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> you said you wanted to provoke a reaction. <clears throat> I consider myself well, provoked. So the, the issue for me is I don't disagree with what you've said there. Yeah. I think that the the plot points and the descriptions of scenes are absolutely accurate in how they are presented in film as well. And I think if you know any listeners wanting to watch Stars in the Dark should be aware that it, although it is presented for me anyway, it, although it is presented in a very naturalistic style of filming, it is not a naturalistic film in any way, shape, or form. I don't think it's intended to be either. My, my belief of the film is that. Von Trier is taking the piss. He's effectively laughing at us by saying, what I'm going to do is I am going to layer tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy on Selma, but I'm not going to allow Selma to take any of route out through her own choices. I think that what he's saying there is that, yeah, all things are complete contrivances, but I've contrived them so that she has absolutely no way out and we move from scene to scene particularly in the second half of the film we move from scene to scene where Selma makes the decisions or people make the decisions for her in effect the very worst decisions that she'd make and I think that is a deliberate act I think it's an act of violence by the director on its on his audience in many ways and I think I think I think and I think that's quite it doesn't mean necessarily I like that approach but I think that's what he's doing it's an incredibly stylized thing that he's doing. The consequence of this, which again might be a commentary, I'm mean, say commentary of the kind of the, the thinking style as well, is that for me, Selma is I'm trying to think of, of what, I, what I mean here. For me, Selma is almost like a saint. Um, she, she's monomaniacal. She has this, um, she has this very, very uh, very specific act that she needs to deliver. Yeah. And she refuses, absolutely refuses, point blank, to countenance anything other than that act, whatever the consequences. And that, to me, and I think Selma in the film is presented in a saintly kind of image. She is very pure in morals, for example, she doesn't reveal Bill's secret to the courtroom, even though it will um, get her to death. Yeah. She doesn't tell her son that he is degenerative eye disease, although it isn't a serial moral choice. But she's, she's very specific about what she does. But she's very self-centered at the cost to her own life and the others around her. So she's monomaniacal and she's saintly. But because she's saintly, she's incredibly naive. as well. But that, again... The protagonist of the film 
is what look like Tree is absolutely intending to be this. She's the person who you are supposed to be driving for in a Hollywood-style musical, which is stripped completely of any um, of any kind of budget for streaming or any fancy set pieces. Strip that back. He's given you a protagonist that will not give you anything. That he's just very stuck on that particular path that she goes down, and you know she's going to end up hanged. If you will not countenance anything else, but she's doing it for a belief in something, whatever that belief is, it creates that saintly in her. And I think that all of those two together means that it's a big middle finger for Von Trier. Now, you know, he wants to do that. <laughs> I don't know. Probably needs to see a psychiatrist or something. Uh, he is a virtual figure, both in terms of filmmaking and both his person as well. So. I think he, what he enjoys is controversy. And this example of that complete flipping of what you expect a musical to be about, and he's flipped that, a complete flip in terms of the conventional narrative driven by characters to be about, because it's very contrived, it's very stick-to-co, it's very stop-start, and it's very, um, it's very tightly wound. Yeah. And all of those things mean that you, you end up with a kind of a, bit like a black box of a film we can't get to the meaning of it because there's no meaning. Yeah. But to do, yeah, to to undermine conventions and to you know, kind of flip things on their head, you kind of know have to know what you're dealing with. And did mm. again, did Lars von Trier give any impression when he was making this film that he knew what a musical was? Because it, again, we we can address the parts of the musical, but it's he's not addressing it from kind of a point of view of someone who is who seems to know what a musical is and and can therefore invert it. He's someone who has maybe seen a musical and thinks I can I can replicate that and flip it on its head. I take it we mean by Selma being very driven. Um, I actually thought that was, again, she makes one decision pretty much. Well, two if you include the murder, but even that's forced upon yeah. her. She makes the one decision, which is, I will renounce my lawyer to pay for my son's operation. That's kind of the... That, the that, that's what I'm going to deny. Yeah, she, yeah. She, you know, it's that, that one very specific goal. Yeah. Doesn't that make her a boring character, though? Because she she doesn't change, because she she but is he, yeah. she is convinced that her light her son's eyesight is worth more than his mother, and nothing anyone can say to her can convince her otherwise. So she is in the same position she was <laughs> yeah. when she ends the when she ends the film. She's in the same position she was when she begins in it in terms of her goal. In, in the same context that you might consider Joan of Arc to be a boring character, because. She doesn't give anything in the context of her beliefs. I mean, very different context, perhaps. She or, raised the seas of Orléans. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see Selma doing that. <laughs> well, so, you know, don't underestimate Selma. Who knows what she's doing in, the, in her afterlife? Indeed. Um, yeah, I, 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 do, I do take your point. And, you know, it's supposed to be clear from, from my perspective. I particularly like Selma. Yeah. Um, I don't particularly like any of the characters in the film. I don't particularly like her son. He's an irritant as well. I don't particularly like Kathy. Well, that's the thing um, about her son. I, I, I tried to do a quick counter, but I think Selma has maybe three scenes with her son. Um, yeah, so when you talk about how, how she's driven to, to do all this yeah, for him. I think that's deliberate. You've got three scenes with her son, and yet the rest of the film is her giving up her life. I think that's just a, it's a, big, it's a big middle finger up to the audience. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just terrible. Maybe it's just be honest, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't know whether it's just the worst film I've ever seen or a work of absolute genius. 
I can't I can't figure it out. Because it could just because... be bad filmmaking. Because <laughs> she's like, if you want to, yeah, if you want to establish, gone. It well, no, it could be really, really bad filmmaking. But I suppose I suppose what I'm doing, which is maybe is that I am couching the filmmaking in the context of Von Trier's Yeah, that's fair enough. And and the problem problem with that is that what I can't can't analyse the film objectively because I've seen and have enjoyed or at least understand some of Von Trier's tropes or tactics. Yeah. So I see it within that kind of paradigm, I suppose. Whereas actually, right, it must be a really terrible film. (laughs) It might be, but... but I can't, I, I can't separate myself from knowing what his other films are like. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. You see it in context. But they, this, this makes it more of an artwork. You know, to some people, Damon Hirst just stuck a cow in formaldehyde. Um, yes. So maybe yeah. it comes down to whether you've seen one piece of his work. I mean, that to me is a. If you have to do homework for a movie, it's a, yeah, it's a yeah. different kind of movie. It, it, it crosses again, crosses the line between what is kind of visual art and what is a movie. But again, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Actually, but that's a very good point. And um, I, I think, I think it's it's a statement, isn't it? I think when, I think Dark in the Dark is making a statement about something, yeah. rather than telling a story about something. What would that that statement be, though? I think I, I think that's the statement that the film is trying to make is, um, it, it it's because it's not about the story; it's about how the film is made and what the film is about. And, and I suppose the, the connection between the filmmaker and the people watching the film, it's saying that, you know, you're, you're complicit in watching this film because I've made a film that is inherently, inherently tragic, but also inherently um, awful in many ways. But it, because it's part of my, my kind of the way that I make films, it's accepted in that regard. No, I don't know. Yeah. I can't get my words out properly, but it feels more of a statement film than a story film. And by statement, I mean it's there to provoke a reaction. Okay, I'm not complacent. I watched it because you made me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, very. Cool. <laughs> he hasn't got me. What, what did you think of the music in the film? I was going to go into that, the music of the film. Um, as a musical, let's look at that. Yeah. Quick statement, I didn't like it. But now yeah. I'm wondering, am I not supposed to like it because it's, you know, it inverts it? Because I, I took a quick peek. The first song, the first musical number is 38 minutes into the film. Yeah. Into a yeah, two hour something yeah. film. So that's, firstly, in a musical, you normally get your, your cue that it's a musical within the first couple of seconds because you begin with the song. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's one. The, the musical number is 38 minutes in the film. Uh, I'm pretty sure, again, all the songs, again, are written and performed by Bjork. Again, she's, she sings in every single one of them, and she may be duets in a couple of them, but it's mostly mm. all Bjork. So you, what you have is five or six songs sung by Bjork and composed by Bjork. So, as a, again, a musical, that's unusual as well. Yeah. Normally you have other people coming in and singing different songs. Um, and it's imp- I think it's important that's the case, because these, these musical instruments are her imagination. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that works there. from the situation that they're in. Yeah. Um, in terms of the songs, I mean, I, I, I don't dislike Bjork songs. I find sort of five of them on the bounce a bit much, um, because there's yeah. not a great amount of variety in them. Um, I'm afraid again, the lyrics are of what you'd call Eurovision bad. They they are incredibly descriptive, um, and in no way 
mood setting or songs or or give any kind of um higher higher image of what the songs are about is literally like I am walking down the stairs I am opening <laughs> the door I fade into David Essex there that was that would be nice <laughs> oh what a circus oh what a show um interestingly the 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 moment when she sings um raindrops on roses which because is the music, um, she sings that at the very end yeah. when she's she's yes, in panicking death row that felt like a huge contrast because of course it's the only song in the movie not again written by Bjork um no. but it's actually written as a hollywood musical and yeah. it's it's the only song in the in the film that ha- that you know uses language to elevate the music rather than be very yeah. very descriptive and, it, and it's it, a beautiful it, song as well yeah and it, it lands like a hammer um again yeah, that that was again what, had i not been pulled out of the film too early that would have got me because again she does it very well but she, she has a love song with the, the kind of interest peter stormer there's quite a lot of people in this film um but again, that's yeah. it's incredibly boring love song, <laughs> because it's very just. Dis- like. Oh, it's just literally it's like, um, do you want to have a family? No. Do you want to raise children? No. <laughs> it's like, oh Christ! It's like this. This is. He can't I'm, sing at all, can he? Uh, no, he can't sing at all. Um, but again, uh, again, the moment when Joel Grey comes in and starts being Aldrich Novi in the courtroom, it's just odd. Um, in not in a good way. It's just in an odd way. First, because. When he starts singing, I'm still processing why have they brought in an aging Czechoslovakian ballet dancer to a Midwestern murder trial? And why did he agree? Is he that bored? Because you could have solved that with a phone call. Um, so as, as again, so as a musical, again, I um, it's on the record. I did not think much of Phantom of the Paradise. I have since gone back and listened to the soundtrack of Phantom and quite enjoyed the music of it. It's, oh, the, the music good. is good. Um, it was written by uh, um, Paul Williams. Paul. Yeah, again, it's it's good songs, in or out of context, they're enjoyable. This I would not listen to again. <laughs> um, it took me a long time to scrub yeah. the songs out of my head. Oh, well, and... there, there are I, I, there are a couple of things that I really liked actually. So the, I, I, you're right about the the, the 38 minutes before the first song comes. I was at that because you know, I I'd heard I know of Dark and the Dark and I knew it was a musical. I had I, I just assumed that it was music throughout. Yeah. Um and to come nearly you know minutes to the to the film a bit of a surprise and I was thinking well where where are the songs what what what's happening here and the song was quite entertaining actually because it was in sync with the rhythms of the machinery in the factory and it, it created a kind of like a, a, a an interesting beat combo yeah. with that process and I also I will like... say for that though um, by this point thirty eight minutes in it had already been established yeah. how grim the setting was and this steel yeah. press was munching away i yeah. i couldn't really enjoy the song because i did think it would end with someone's hand getting mangled in the press <laughs> i thought that would be the the, the final uh, on uh, the final refrain Scrunch. i I, uh, I, I, know, I actually quite liked the duet between selma and jeff on oh. the but what about the duet think... between selma and the murder victim because that was the oddest no, moment that, that, that was my favorite <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Well, but I mean, not not necessarily because of the itself, but because of the context. I enjoyed it. I that he, so he's he's just been brutally murdered. Yeah, to set the picture, she's, yeah, she, she's now yeah, she's now got a corpse in the house that she's washing yeah. her hands. So uh, she starts singing. Appy pops, gives his face a bit of a wash, um, and he starts singing with her. And then yeah. uh, her little boy is riding around his bicycle outside, also joining in with "You did what you had to do." Well, I quite liked it, and actually, it's moving as well because 
it, 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 what it does is it externalizes what I think she's going through at that particular point in time. I think it's just, it, you're right though, it isn't a traditionally um, uplifting um, musical number. No, I would in, say. In, the, in the structure um, of musicals, that's known as the, the, the act one finisher. They go into the interval drinks, and for the act one, you normally have something that has the audience humming the song at the end of it, while they, while they say yeah. they'll come back for act two. I'm not sure yeah. were this presented traditionally, this would have many people come back in act two. Only people like me, perhaps, who um, enjoy being hit round the head with a an, a, a, a sledgehammer of uh, depression and uh, grim filmmaking. I'd say that's fair. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I also quite. I also quite. I thought. Well, the final scene and song quite affecting. Um, but I think I'd I'd engaged. I'd invested more. Sorry. I think the film had invested more in me. Uh, at that point than perhaps and so I, I kind of think I, I went with it a bit um, in that context uh, I mean there aren't many songs in it though five overall uh, and you know the odd smattering of um, the sound of music as well which which kind of rears its head uh, in a few instances throughout the, the, the film itself. Um, anything else you want to say about Dancing in the Dark from an analytical perspective I did, again, I'm going to have another nitpick. When she's saying that um, she can't tell her son that he needs an operation because his eyes will get worse with worry, she's saying this from death row, and I'm thinking, having your mum on death row could be a source of worry. Um, I would also <laughs> yeah. say that uh, if, if she's gone for, you know, she, she, she travelled over for socialised medicine, America is possibly the worst place she could have picked uh, to do this. Although actually, as a wider context, in terms of the setting, you mentioned it was shot in the 60s. Yeah. I didn't get that. What I got from it was... This is shot in Europe. I think it was Sweden. It was actually shot by someone yeah, who's got yeah. no idea what America looks like or feels like, because that was a big problem for me. They had, I think, one American actor. Maybe that's where the budget went on getting David Morse. A lot of good European stars in it, but it, the cars they drove did not look like American cars, even from the 60s. The trains that were running past didn't look like American trains. Again, the houses didn't look like American houses. So nothing looked American yeah. in any sense. Not not rural American, Midwestern American. Nothing at all resembled America. And I just thought, why have you bothered? They don't need to set it in America to tell this story. It often, it often, <laughs> not why have you bothered in the whole sense, well, well, that, that can come into it too. But if you're trying to tell this story, set it in Czechoslovakia or, you know, and have the, have the, you know, the, the, you can have the juries send someone to death in Czechoslovakia, I'm sure, in the 60s. They did it all the time. Uh, it so felt not set in the USA. Yeah. Like, even the police uniforms and everything didn't look like a police uniform. The car was ridiculously anachronistic. So that was another problem for me right from the get-go, and I had to really focus hard on kind of, you know, not looking at that too carefully. Um, yeah. Because it 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 looked cut price. Again, it looked very budget. Um, which I'm yeah. sure it wasn't hugely budgeted anyway. No. But I think if you're going to well, do it, own it. I'll, Just say, I'll, this I'll, is shot. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a big problem for me in terms of the setting. But I think that, and analysis-wise... I can draw a land of that. I've, I've had me the event. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, a couple of other interesting points in the film. A very brief cameo from Stellan which was quite yes, nice. Yes, yes. Yeah. So if we, want, if we wanted to do a deep dive on some of the minor characters, I think I would choose Jeff, um, who is, uh, who's played by Storm. Peter Storm. Um, yeah, and he, he, um, he, he's, he basically plays the film as love interest, although Selma wants nothing to do she wants to spend all of her time thinking about her son. She doesn't need the distraction of Jeff yeah. 
Basically, just a bit creepy, if you ask me. I would say, funny enough, he's, he's the only thing in a very creepy film that isn't that creepy, because he's just... Oh, really? he, he's, he's nice to her, he gets, he gets a kid a bicycle. She's clearly... Again, she's not... When she when she pushes him away, it, she's not, uh, you know, uncomfortable in that sense. She doesn't... I don't think she she feels threatened or, or discomforted by Jeff. She just doesn't want to be close to anybody. Almost because of her low self-esteem, she just didn't feel, you know, an old blind woman has anything to offer, and also because she's focused on getting the money for her son. But yeah, I mean, Peter, she's better than Peter Stormare, so it's not super charming. <laughs> yeah. So, just, just to be you, someone who buys someone's child a bike is not creepy. <laughs> in the set, well, it's it's very much in context of again, they have a nice. He he's there with Bill and Linda and uh, Salma in happier times before everyone starts stealing money and killing each other, and it feels like a kind of a family picnic. They're out there, um, the little kids run the bike around. Uh, so he's he's more sort of tossing his cap uh, at her rather than being a bit creepy and possessive. Although, frankly, yeah, the the duet lost me. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he's maybe he's just so creepy, and a combination of him being so creepy in a really creepy film means that he's come full circle and ends up not being creepy at all. It could all. be that. I find Bill a lot creepier, yeah. but David Morse is a much creepier actor. I've, I've, there's a certain yeah, warmth to Peter Stormare, yeah. even when he's yeah. being a villain. David Morse is just creepy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Jeff. Other than trying to kind of woo Selma, and he's obviously aware that something is wrong because he's constantly trying to offer her lifts, and he's worried yeah. about her when she walks in the buckle and this kind of stuff as well. So she, he knows, you know, he knows the deal effectively. Yeah. He doesn't really do much in, the, you know, he has. He, I don't really know why he's there, really. No, I think he's yeah. there to make Selma more tragic, to show that she has an out yeah. and she chooses not to yeah, take that, it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you're right, yeah. Um, the other couple of points I wanted to mention as well... I think, that's, um, again, Kathy is probably there as well. Again, a lot of the... Any character who isn't Selma doesn't have yeah, a lot to they, do. Kathy yeah. is there, again, to show that Selma has friends, but she chooses not to, to to lean on them in that sense because it makes them more tragic and more driven. You're, you're, yes, exactly right. They are all there to provide Selma with further tragedy and further tragedy as a consequence of that. Yeah. You mentioned the film Budget, and you, you said that, you know, they didn't have a lot of money invested in it. Um, it, it's an independent film. Um, it made by Xenotropa Entertainment, which is Von Trier's own kind of production. It, it, it was made, um, it was $12.5 million was the budget for the film, which is not, I think, for an independent film made at the turn of the century. Like and Star it Wars made, money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. George Lucas made Star Wars for $12.5 million. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's 22 years earlier. That's but true. Still, you know, yeah. I, I, if this um, had been one twenty second as good as Star Wars, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it, the the uh, box office, it made fifty million dollars. Oh my so god! It was a huge success. A huge How? Success. And actually, the only financially successful film that we have reviewed, the weekend at Crawley. So it just goes to show you that popularity doesn't necessarily mean good. In fairness, I was aware that uh, yeah, it, it, that there are great fans of this film, and I do feel like you know the philistine in the art gallery that doesn't get yeah. it and just says it's just a red square. Why are you considering this art? I'm aware of all that, but you know uh, you've got to be honest on uh, yeah. Weekend at Grumby's, and that was my take on it. You feel how you feel. The other thing in 2000, it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes that I was uh, for of, yeah. best film, and Bjork won the best actress at, at, at Cannes as well. Um, so it has a it has a history behind it. Um, the, the, a little bit about the, about the film as well. Um, 
there was huge shock and surprise when Bjork wasn't nominated for an Oscar for Best um, Actress at the 2000 Academy Awards as well. She was apparently um, Bookie's favourites to win. Uh, wow. but, so, you know, that's an interesting one, given that, you, you know, it, she, I think that her performance is very stylized. I actually quite like it. I think she puts in a, a, a pretty tough performance. Um, given not an actress, I think that it, it's quite engaging. It, I mean, I think does what she's supposed to do. Uh, I, I would imagine that she's she's running on pure energy and emotion rather than any kind of, this is going to sound terrible, but rather than any kind of um, technical ability to be an actor, if that makes sense. She's, yeah, yeah. she's just She's just falling, she's just going for it, basically, yeah. um, which I think is quite interesting. And the, the other... The other program, very recently, actually, Bjork has come out. She's not, she's not performed, uh, she's not acted in any other films either. She's the only, the only film she's been in. Um, and she, she, you know, was refused to act in any other films. And part of the reason for that was because she has, um, it, you know, she, she's she allegedly um, sickly harassed Von Trier on set. Now, he denies that quite vociferously, I suppose as you would. That comes with the terror pose with Von Trier a little bit. Now, careful what I say here, because I appreciate the fact that our podcast might be available to the public. But um, so I don't want to be sued by anyone. <laughs> if we are I'm sued by someone, people. it means that that means lawyers will have to hear it, juries, and there would double <laughs> yeah, the amount of people exactly. who hear it. Yeah, but again, you know, not, I'm not talking about sexual harassment here. That's a very different thing. But but Von Trier does have history with alienating his actors yeah. in the films that he makes. But he also has very, very strong defenders as well. So, you know, Bjorn is, you know, probably the most vociferous vocal uh, critic of Von Trier. You know, and not just a critic, but actually said that he's, he physically assaulted me during the time. Uh, Von Trier counters that by saying, actually, you know, there was nothing. But, but there, there certainly has been a bullying at the very least. Other actresses who have worked with Von Trier like um, oh, uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst, who was in Melancholia that, that he directed, and um, Charlotte, oh, I can't remember what her name is, but anyway, she was an Antichrist with Roger. They won't have a bad word said against him. So, you know, he obviously, again, divides opinion. Um, and he's just a controversial character. When Melancholia was um, shown at Cannes in, I think, 2010, um, he, his comments about Hitler and Nazism he basically said um whatever you think about hitler he was effective um what he did but, you know i mean that's a horrendously um ignorant thing to say but it's the kind of thing that he says to provoke and he was banned from Cannes subsequently um so he, he does that it just wouldn't surprise me in fact, i'm almost fairly sure that dancing in the dark is you know, is a is probably the pinnacle of his slap in the face uh, and maybe fool like me keep coming back for more because I like being slapped in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's some. Yeah. Um, well, you see, if if it's, if it's saying it's on the level of someone who you know throws a, a verbal hand grenade about the Nazis into a conversation to shock you, that to me is not yeah. you know a, no, a, a, a clever yeah, artist. Yeah. That's a Twitter troll. Um, yeah. that is is best ignored and blocked. Uh, yeah, and and you know what. <laughs> That is exactly the um, criticism labelled against him. Yeah. That he isn't a visionary, that he isn't a genius. He's just a very naughty boy. <laughs> you know, 
he doesn't. He, it's empty. He's empty. Yeah. He just makes terrible films that have or any kind of worth to them. Um, but see it very differently. And I've seen films of his that I felt this is bloody awful. But I've also watched films where I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. One of the worst films I've ever seen called The Idiots, which was um, a about a group of um, perf- um, a performance group who pretend to be disabled. Yeah. Um, and they spent the entire, um, almost the entire adult life just being disabled. And it's just such a it's such a grim film as well. The flip side of that is Melancholia. It's a brilliant film about depression. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a fantastically brilliant film. Antichrist is a controversial film. It's beautifully filmed. It's it's a cracking film. Nymphomania is a terrible film, full of indulgence. I can't work out whether I like him or whether I don't like him. But I would always watch his film. Yeah. Um. I think we've done the analysis, haven't we? I think we have. I think uh, are we are we heading off for scores on the doors, and uh, scores on the doors, I think. and then we'll find out what film we'll be watching next. Audiences always what, look forward. What Lars von Trier film will we be choosing to watch next month? <laughs> I'm completely, um, I com- I'm completely in the dark as to what film that you might choose. I, I, I'm expecting, I'm expecting something completely the opposite. This maybe a, I don't know a Disney film or something like that. We shall find out. Right to see. Welcome back to the uh, the 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 sharp end of weekend at Crombies, where we give our scores and we find out what we're doing next month. So I think tradition dictates that I go first with my scores. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think we we all. This is going. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave you no more suspense. We give it uh, a mark out of five floating crombie heads. We we can't give half 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 marks, and we can't give zero. I feel I need to emphasize that we cannot give zero. <laughs> <laughs> so I shan't be when the Bushmans were. It's quite clear I did not enjoy this film. I didn't engage with it as a viewer of the film, as a musical. The performances are strong. I mean, in fairness, maybe they de- they deserve a crombie head because there were some. Well, Bjork, basically. Everyone else is, is either feeding into it. But Bjork gives a good, solid performance. If you like that kind of music, you get a lot of it. Um, but in terms of a musical, a story, a piece of cinema, and two, out- two hours of your own time spent in front of a screen, I could give it nothing more than one floating crombie head. And I will say now, I'm kind of feeling bad about Phantom of the Paradise. I was going to say... I, was gonna say I hit the floor too soon. I, I, I have a, yeah, I have a feeling that... Dancing in the Dark might be the worst film you've ever seen. <laughs> and I, you've given it the same score as Phantom of the Paradise. I know. Which we not... isn't that bad. No, did you want to be honest? I, 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 I think, and I remembered some bits about Phantom that I didn't enjoy, um, but Phantom of the Paradise was simply just a bad film. This is a bad film. In fact, this is not even a film. This was t- this was two hours of something. But, uh, but I, uh, yeah. That, it, <laughs> what did you um... rate it, James? <laughs> Uh, right, so uh, I've been toying with this for a while, and um, I I am gonna oh straight up I'm gonna give it four crombie heads. It's a difficult one because did I enjoy the film? Um, no. Did I find the film entertaining? <laughs> did I find the film thought provoking? Yes. But not because of the things that it me with in terms of its story, but rather maybe I was thinking too much about 
what's intention of filmmaker was and that's my bad in many ways but because of that i was thoroughly engaged in the film i found it quite moving actually but i more than anything i was this can sound pretentious and i'm sorry but you, you feel how you feel i was intellectually stimulated by what the film was doing if not what it was saying and it stuck with me, and the thoughts have stuck with me for a long time afterwards. Um, it's not my favourite von Trier, but it is it is a very effective exercise in trickery, mischievousness, and belligerence. And that I have to admire it. So four floating crumbie heads. Four floating crumbie heads. There you go. You've got your recommendation. You can choose one or the other. <laughs> uh, now is the time where we will have to announce the movie we'll be watching for July. And uh, you're not wrong, James, oh, when you said we'd, we'd, uh, we're going to change gear with the next one. So I've also picked a film that is both very different to the ones that came before, and I would say oh. exceptionally different to the one we've just seen. So <laughs> the uh, the next weekend at Crombie's film we'll be watching is The Secret of Nim. Oh, ah! No, I have not seen that film for years. Nor have I. Years and years in the Secret of Nim. It's again, it's a early 1980s animation by Don Bluth. Uh, we will yep. dig into it a lot next month, I'm sure. But that will be the film we'll be watching. Forward to reviewing the Secret of Nim with you, Hugh. Uh, a, a fantastic choice, and uh, that will enable us to expunge the memory of <laughs> in the dark. Um, or at least to perhaps come out of the darkness into the light and see humanity as a fundamentally optimistic um, activity for us to engage. I, I, for one, look forward to it. Until then, I wish you a very happy weekend at Crombies. Evening all. Weekend at Crombies. seem to be a more generous... You are a more generous um, thing. I think we should like movies more... <laughs> I think, I think, although, you, I think you could watch a test card for two, for two hours and you'd give it three <laughs> floating crumbies. If it was directed by Lars von Trier, I'd have something to say about it. <laughs>